0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Testicular cancer accounts for only around 1% of all cancers in men and is most common in males from age 15 to 35. Around 10,000 new cases are diagnosed per year, resulting in about 400 deaths. testicular cancer is relatively uncommon, other abnormalities can occur in the scrotum, which are quite common and fortunately relatively benign. Most of these conditions present as a scrotal nodular mass and can be quite frightening to the patient if they discover them. In today's podcast, we'll discuss scrotal masses, including testicular cancer, with our guest, Dr. Bradley Leibovich former chair of the department of urology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Brad, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Dr. Chukka. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start with some of the benign things that we may discover or the patient may discover on self-examination. Let's start with the spermatocele. What exactly is that and what might a patient or a provider feel?
1: Sure. So I really appreciate the setup that you provided prior to this segment regarding benign versus malignant masses that people find in the scrotum. A spermatocyl is a common benign finding in the scrotum. And as you said, whenever people uh, feel or notice something that's abnormal in the scrotum, it does cause tremendous concern. As you alluded to, the vast majority of masses that are found in the scrotum are benign. It's amazing to me that the owners of this anatomy, that is most men, have very little understanding of what is actually going on in the scrotum. So a urologist or any physician for that matter understands for the most part that masses that are in the scrotum outside of the testicle proper are almost always benign and usually considered benign until proven otherwise and that masses found in the testicle itself are much less common and are malignant until proven otherwise. So things outside the scrotum includes spermatoceles which is just a cyst in the epididymis. So the C-shaped structure that hangs off the back of the testicle, which is where sperm are stored as opposed to the testicle itself, which makes testosterone and where the sperm are made. A spermatocel is also sometimes called an epididymal cyst, and it's just that, just a cyst within those tubules in that storage system for the testicle. They are completely benign. They can sometimes become inflamed, either because they are infected or often without infection, and they can be a source of pain. But more often than not, they don't cause symptoms unless they get very large. They can become very large. They're relatively easy to take care of with an outpatient surgical procedure where uh, these things can be removed, preserving the normal structures of the testicle if necessary, but more often than not, we can simply reassure men that it's nothing to worry about. Okay.
0: Well, the next one, epididymitis, certainly I have had many patients come in after they've discovered their epididymis, but when it becomes inflamed, I think they're usually coming in more for discomfort than for anything that they've actually felt.
1: Right. So yeah, epididymitis is just a catch-all phrase for inflammation of the epididymis. And you're absolutely right. Sometimes people have just discovered that they have an epididymis, but when it's truly painful, it can be infectious in nature and it can be, again, just sterile inflammation, secondary to sometimes even minor trauma. The treatment is to figure out, is this infectious? In which case, you know, we give appropriate antibiotics and hopefully culture-driven because sometimes a urinalysis or I a urine culture alone can direct us to the appropriate antibiotics if we can culture something from the urine. Otherwise, we tend to use quinolones or other similar antibiotics and treat empirically if we have evidence that it's likely infectious. For people that don't have contraindications, Things like nonsteroidal anti inflammatory drugs and other conservative measures like scrotal support and moist heat, being careful not to hurt anything, of course, are helpful as well as adjunctive measures. So uh, a urine culture might show something. You don't literally have to put a needle in
0: the epididymis to get tissue. Uh, that could Correct. Be
1: that. Yeah. So in men that haven't had a vasectomy, that structure still communicates with their urinary system. And sometimes we can get just a regular old voided urine culture to get a clue as to what's going on there.
0: Okay. And if you just see pyuria in the urinalysis, does that help you with inflammation versus infection?
1: Not necessarily. So, you know, there's a long list of things that cause sterile pyuria. But I think, obviously, if you have pyuria, if you have lower urinary tract, irritative symptoms suggestive of cystitis on top of the epididymitis, then typically, even if we can't culture something, we would think about treating with a presumptive diagnosis of infection.
0: Okay. Well, the next on my list is a varicocele. And to me, this always feels kind of like a bag of worms. Tell us about a varicocele.
1: That's exactly how urologists are trained to think of it as well. So, varicoceles can be subclinical, meaning they're only really present with valsalva and the standing position and not even palpable, seen only on ultrasound, to that bag of worms can be visible at rest, lying down. They are, uh, again, obviously benign. This is just a collection of dilated veins and themselves don't cause harm. Some patients will complain of a heavy dragging sensation or just sort of an achy discomfort when they have a varicocele. Uh, Not exactly my area of expertise as a urologic oncologist, but I know that my colleagues who are fertility experts in some cases will opt to fix a varicocele surgically, not due to symptoms, but due to poor semen parameters in men that are having trouble with fertility. So sometimes in young men, teenagers, We fix them if there's evidence of a discrepancy in size of the testicle. Sometimes they're fixed in older men who are concerned about fertility issues, and sometimes they're fixed simply due to symptoms. Mm -hmm. But in the absence of those conditions, it can be left alone. So surgical correction can improve the likelihood of fertility? A surgical repair of a varicocele can improve semen parameters, but of course, fertility is a multifaceted issue, but definitely there is some evidence that correction of a varicocele in somebody that actually has poor semen parameters can reverse some of those poor semen parameters. Okay. Let's talk about a hydrocele. I've had
0: many patients who have had these and maybe it's just my own patient selection, but for some reason, they've been reluctant to have these things repaired, and some of them get quite large. So yeah, tell us about hydroceles.
1: So, hydrocele is just another cystic fluid collection in the scrotum. It has to do with the embryonic origins of the testicles, which came from the midline in the retroperitoneum, descended through our abdomen as we developed, pushed through the abdominal wall, and then wind up in the scrotum. And in so doing push a portion of the peritoneum over them. And that is typically closed. And a hydrocele is just a fluid collection within those two folds of peritoneum that surround the testicle. As you said, it's remarkable that these things can sometimes be the size of a cantaloupe and people mm-hmm. will simply ignore it. That is perfectly fine. It is completely benign. We fix them if men are bothered by them. So some men are incredibly bothered by what people would consider relatively minor swelling. And some men are not bothered at all by the cantaloupe size hydrocele. It's a simple outpatient surgery to fix. There's lots of things that can be done, but the, the you know, sort of most successful gold standard procedure is that we simply open up that sac and fold it back upon itself and basically try to obliterate the opportunity for fluid to recollect in that area. A uh, low risk procedure outpatient, as I said, not much discomfort or other difficulty in recovery from that, but doesn't have to be taken care of unless it's bothersome. Mm-hmm. And these are relatively easy to
0: diagnose, especially when they're good size, but I've, you know, they transilluminate illuminate very nicely too. If you put a correct cool yeah. burst of light, they just, the whole thing glows.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I know we're going to talk about testicular cancer later, but I think the issue that we worry about as urologists and my colleagues specifically like me, who are urologic oncologists and treat testicular cancer is that, yes, you can tell us that um, this is likely a hydrocele by simply taking your flashlight and putting it on the scrotum in a dark room and see that it, the whole area glows pinkish red. So that certainly tells us that the vast majority of the mass we're looking at is a seal. What we can't tell in that circumstance, or sometimes if there's a really big spermatocel, for example, is whether or not there could be a obscured testicular tumor in that patient. So, there will be occasions where, in people that are adamant about not being subjected to a hydrocele repair or a spermaticale removal, mm-hmm. where we might say, "Hey, look, let's just get a, an ultrasound because a self exam isn't reliable in you to assure that there's nothing going on in the testicle." So, we should we get an ultrasound when we discover a patient with with a hydrocele? Well, we'll get to that when we talk more about testicular cancer screening. I think the recommendation from a urologist would be perhaps maybe as a part of a shared decision making with our patients. The recommendations from the US Preventative Task Service would be very different, but maybe we can broach that again when we start to talk about testicular cancer. Sure.
0: And I suppose a man who comes in and says they've had this for 10 years is a different different story. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: There can be, to your point, a reactive hydrocele meaning a new diagnosis of a hydrocele, especially in those younger men, it could be a reactive hydrocele to a tumor. Again, that's, mm-hmm. uh, we don't want to scare people unnecessarily. That's not the norm. The norm is that it's just a hydrocele, but it would be something to at least think about.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the next is a as uh, an inguinal hernia. I, I guess, theoretically, it's possible for this to end up in the scrotum. I'm not sure I've actually seen one that's gone that far, but Does that happen very often?
1: It does, yeah. So inguinal hernias with just omental fat, with bowel, can certainly present as a scrotal mass. This is something that when we as urologists find them, we send them over to our colleagues in general surgery right away. It's a risk that something can wind up incarcerated, and they're the best ones to sort out whether or not that's an immediate concern that requires surgical intervention sooner rather than later, or if this is something that we can sit on for a while. This is because, as we said before, the testicle has descended through that inguinal canal and it can become more open, more patent than it's supposed to be, allowing things to fall down. In the best cases, it's a nuisance for the patient. In the worst cases, it, it can be dangerous and you can have incarcerated bowel and actually have necrosis of bowel in these uh, inguinal hernias. So best to get a surgical consultation sooner rather than later, if possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay.
0: And the last on my benign list, although this one is not completely benign, is testicular torsion. And this one, again, presents probably more with pain rather than a uh, mass that the patient feels.
1: So the classic presentation of a testicular torsion is acute onset of pain. It can occur with rest or with activity, and it's severe pain. And uh, the testicle is often not only exquisitely tender, but sort of riding high, we would say up in the scrotum. And instead of oriented normally, appears to be running horizontally or in some position other than with a long axis vertical as it's supposed to be. This is a surgical emergency. So yes, it's benign in that there's not a malignancy involved typically, but we have a limited amount of time to fix a torsion. And that causes a torsion is basically a loose connection of the testicle within the scrotum that allows it to twist on its blood supply. And the testicle is painful because it's necrotic. And the longer we wait to fix that, the worse the outcome in terms of, you know, having a viable testicle that we can save. So this is an emergency and something that needs to be referred for, you know, surgical intervention as soon as it's recognized. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's turn now to testicular cancer. Can
0: you briefly review the various types of uh, testicular cancers?
1: When we say testicular cancer, what we typically mean is a, a germ cell tumor of the testicle. So these are cancers that occur in the precursors of what is destined to become a sperm cell because there's a potential for those cells to generate a whole human being, these cells can differentiate in multiple ways. So when we talk about testicular cancer, there are five different subtypes of these germ cell tumors. So there's seminoma, there's choriocarcinoma, there's embryonal carcinoma, yolk sac tumor, and teratoma. We divide those into two broad categories of seminoma, which is those that have seminoma and nothing else, or non-seminoma, which is anybody that has any elements other than seminoma, including people with mixed tumors inclusive of seminoma and those other four types. In general, prognosis is great for all of them, but there's some differences in how we treat the pure seminomas versus the non-seminomas. There are other types of malignancies that can occur, other than these germ cell malignancies, but those are exceptionally, exceptionally rare. Are some more at risk for getting a testicular cancer than others? Are are there risk factors? There are risk factors for testicular cancer. In general, the majority of patients we see don't have identifiable risk factors, but the risk factors that we know are real and should perhaps raise increased levels of concern... Would be things like a history of cryptorganism or undescended testicle, which does increase risk. Although most people with testicular cancer don't have a family history of testicular cancer, having a family history of testicular cancer does increase the risk. So, you know, I always assure to the best of my ability that men that I treat with testicular cancer understand that their siblings, their children have an increased risk but I'm cautious to say the overwhelming majority of them will not get testicular cancer. It's just, uh, let's let's remember that they do have a slightly increased risk. There is some fairly good evidence that whatever is going on in men that causes male factor infertility increases risk of testicular cancer as well. Why that is, I don't know that we are completely uh, sure we understand but it's a fairly consistent finding that men that present with male factor infertility do have an increased risk of testicular cancer relative to those that don't have infertility issues. Obviously, men that have a prior history of testicular cancer have a greatly increased risk of uh, getting a new second testicular cancer. So for example, a man that has already lost one testicle and already been treated for testicular cancer has a two to 5% chance of getting a new second testicular cancer in the remaining testicle. So that's of course much greater than the remainder of the population. There is a definite sort of race and ethnicity and geographic predilection for testicular cancer as well. So men of Northern European descent have the highest risk of testicular cancer, for example. Uh, You mentioned age at one point, you you hit the nail on the head, mid-teens to mid-30s is the biggest peak of testicular cancer, but a lot of people aren't aware that there's a a second peak actually in the 50s and 60s, smaller in numbers and uh, different in in makeup of the patients. Those patients that get testicular cancer later in life are typically those pure seminoma types, which uh, as we said, have the best prognosis of all. Uh, and there's some other uh, less prominent risk factors, but those are the, the big ones. Mm-hmm. Well, unlike females who come
0: in generally annually for a cervical <sighs> pap smear or mammogram, we don't see too many males from ages 15 to 35. Mm-hmm. So my suspicion is m- most testicular cancers possibly are
1: identified by the patient themselves. Right. So, that is true. So, the vast majority of the time, testicular cancer is something that the patient themselves uh, point out to us. And maybe we can talk more about how we can enhance the likelihood of that, get them to come in earlier, et cetera, in in a minute. But there's a subset of patients who present for other reasons that have odd findings that we might not uh, typically associate with testicular cancer. So, Most of the time, it's a man coming in saying, hey, something's not right down there. I feel a lump, something swollen or something like that. We're trained to think that these are typically painless lumps, and they often are, but they can cause pain as well. There are weird presentations of testicular cancer, such as breast enlargement in men, even discharge from the nipples, which should always raise the question of, could this man have a testicular cancer? We quite frequently have, at least in our center, because we collect some of the more difficult cases, people referred after somebody has gotten a scan for back pain or belly discomfort or some other reason, and there's retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, so testicular cancer spreads to the nodes in the retroperitoneum and Often this has been biopsied and, and along the way, nobody has sort of done the standard straightforward stuff, like just do a scrotal exam and check some blood tests for the tumor markers that we have for testicular cancer, alpha fetoprotein protein and beta ACG. You're right. Most often it's a man feeling something in the testicle or, or a partner feeling something in the patient's testicle, but there are these other weird presentations. Mm-hmm.
0: I've probably found a few testicular cancers in my career but there was one that was just incredibly interesting. It was a young male, probably in his early thirties, who came in because he felt a nodule in one of his testicles. And I examined him and I was pretty certain by my exam that it was benign, probably a spermatocel. But I, I always pursue these with an imaging study and I got an ultrasound and sure enough, the lesion was benign. But on the other testicle, there was a malignancy Mm That embedded in the testicle. And it was just totally fortuitous that this man came in when he did.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to talk about imaging and the US Preventative Task Services recommendations around uh, screening for testicular cancer. Sure. I don't know how else to fit it in. Mm -hmm. So, the current grade rating that they provide for any form of testicular cancer screening, whether that's imaging with ultrasounds or even something as simple as what most urologists recommend, which is monthly testicular self examination, they give that a D grade. And the reason they give it a D grade and recommend against any screening is because the likelihood of finding testicular cancer in a screened population is exceedingly low because we only have eight to 10,000 cases per year in the United States and they are concerned about the possible harms from screening, which would be anxiety or perhaps unnecessary procedures, unnecessary cost. I don't really know anybody that's an expert in testicular cancer that agrees with that position, because as long as we do the appropriate setup and explanation that the vast majority of the time, if you find something abnormal in the scrotum, it's gonna be benign. I think we can alleviate any concerns about anxiety. As long as we are appropriate and thoughtful about when we order imaging studies, and I I like the way you handled the patient you mentioned, then again, I think we can eliminate overdiagnosis and overuse of imaging. The fact of the matter is they also point to the extremely high cure rate and the fact that we can cure men even with advanced disease very often when we treat testicular cancers. What that overlooks is where we have spent a lot of our energy recently in uh, advancing testicular cancer treatment. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we diagnose earlier and how can we minimize the toxicity and long-term impacts of our therapies in men for testicular cancer. So the fact of the matter is when we diagnose men early we can cure them often with simple removal of the testicle. Sometimes there's additional surgery. Sometimes there's additional chemotherapy. And in rare circumstances of pure seminomas, we use radiotherapy. But we know that in those men where we are forced to use chemotherapy and radiotherapy, since they are highly likely to be cured, that 20 or 30 years down the road, which is a real issue for men as young as testicular cancer patients, we are putting them at risk for secondary malignancies of other types from our therapy. Mm -hmm. And we cause cardiovascular complications later in life from our therapy. So any opportunity to cure everybody, which is associated with an early diagnosis and minimize those toxicities, which can be done with earlier diagnosis is critically important. So long way of saying, Yes, a lot of men come in. We need to help those men come in earlier and be less concerned because while most men do present themselves saying, Hey, something's not right down there. There's often a delay because they're fearful and we need to educate them around everything that I just said so that that fear is gone. And they understand that the expectation for men with testicular cancer is cure and preservation of quality of life. And the the more they help us, uh, the more likely it is we can deliver on that. Mm -hmm. Is the ultrasound the imaging of choice? for The ultrasound is unequivocally the imaging of choice for any questions about what's going on in the scrotum.
0: Okay. So our ultrasounds have gotten much improved in terms of their resolution and we now get a statement from the radiologist giving us a likelihood that this is benign or malignant, right. and if it suggests malignancy, we refer to urology. What do you do that, at that point?
1: So again, assuming that this is a, a lesion concerning for a testicular cancer, we check some standard blood tests and then include two specific markers for testicular cancer. That's the alpha-feta protein and beta-HCG. These are made variously by those different subtypes of testicular cancer and are helpful in establishing the diagnosis and in discerning which of the varieties of testicular cancer we might be dealing with. They are not always elevated, and the absence of elevation in those two markers does not preclude testicular cancer, but it's it's helpful to us to get that, and we get it before we remove the testicle. And then we actually check them again later to see what's happened afterwards because how those tumor markers behave after removal of the testicle, if they were elevated, dictates some of our additional treatments down the road. There's a third marker, which is LDH, which is a non specific marker. We get it because it is an indicator of bulk of disease of testicular cancer, but it's not, it's not a specific testicular cancer marker. At some point after the testicles removed, or in some cases we do it before, we need to get imaging. And the standard imaging, because testicular cancer prefers to spread through lymphatic channels to the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, is a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis without and with contrast. Assuming that we don't see anything there and the tumor markers are normal, then a chest X-ray is good enough. If we have elevation of tumor markers and or significant adenopathy in the retroperitoneum, then we get a chest CT scan. And really that's the entire evaluation.
0: And I imagine, obviously, management depends on what is found. Is it local disease or is it metastasized?
1: So thankfully, the majority of men present with localized disease and a good majority of men Are actually done with treatment and can be uh, surveilled only, no additional treatment after removal of the testicle. So, what's the survival
0: of patients? I'm sure it's quite good with local disease. Um, How about those
1: who have metastases? Yeah, so quite good, I think, would be not doing it justice. So, Hmm. for those men that present with disease confined to the testicle, the survival is actually about 99% long term survival. The survival for more advanced stages is lower, but still exceptionally good. So Even men with very advanced, widely metastatic testicular cancer with multimodality therapy, which is typically chemotherapy and surgery, but sometimes just chemotherapy, and sometimes for men with slightly less advanced disease, just surgery to remove the retroperitoneal lymph nodes the survival is still exceptionally high. It depends on the circumstance, but it's still more often than not in excess of 90%. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, since we're dealing with younger men who still are probably thinking about having a family, what's the potential for being fertile, either following uh, removal of one testicle or receiving more aggressive treatment for spread, widespread right. spread disease?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. One of the the most often overlooked steps in how we manage these patients is to address concerns about removal of a testicle and future fertility and other issues at the very beginning. So when I sit down with these young men before we move to the orchiectomy, we talk about the three things that testicles do for men. And I tell them that testicles are the main factory for testosterone production and that we often see and expect no change in testosterone levels after removal of a single testicle. So it's tightly regulated by your brain, sir, and it's not likely you're going to have any issues. But if they do have issues with low testosterone levels that are symptomatic after surgery, then it's quite easy nowadays to replace testosterone. We then talk about the fact that testicles are ornamental and a lot of men sort of misunderstand what's going to happen with orchiectomy. So, you know, I make sure that they understand that we're removing the testicle, the scrotum itself is remaining, your other testicle is remaining where it is. And it's going to be pretty hard for people to tell across a crowded gym if your towel falls down in the locker room that you're missing a testicle. But for those men that are concerned about body image issues, we can place a testicular prosthesis at the time of testicle removal quite easily. And we can also do it later if they're disappointed they didn't ask for it initially. And then the most important one, as you alluded to, is fertility issues. For that reason, in any man that is going to have any treatment for testicular cancer, as long as it's not an emergent situation, which is very uncommon, we ask them If there's any chance that you want to have kids after this, please let us do some sperm banking in advance of anything else. So we get them to sperm bank, but we also tell them that we're hopeful and optimistic that they won't need it. The other testicle, we expect to make sperm. If men get chemotherapy, there's a possibility that they will not make sperm again after chemotherapy, but most men do recover normal spermatogenesis after chemotherapy it's important to make sure they're informed that they shouldn't have a pregnancy during chemotherapy or have some protection for a period of time, perhaps as long as two years after chemotherapy, because of the teratogenic effect of the chemotherapy itself. But most men that get chemotherapy will recover normal spermatogenesis and retain fertility. And then the surgery that we do to remove the lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum has an unusual potential side effect. So there are some postganglionic sympathetic nerves that run right along the area where those lymph nodes exist that control emission and ejaculation. So it is possible that men will lose ejaculatory function from the surgery when we remove those retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So I explained that to men before we do that surgery. In most cases, we can preserve those nerves, but it's not 100% successful in preserving ejaculatory function. So the short answer is everybody should be offered sperm banking up front if they plan to have a pregnancy at some point after they've been diagnosed. But most of the time, they don't need to access that. Most of the time, we can expect that they will be fertile down the road.
0: All right. So Brad, speaking as a urologist and one who deals with testicular cancer, what are your recommendations for testicular cancer screening? Yeah,
1: I'm going to differ from our federal government friends on this one. I see really no reason why men should not be educated at puberty and encouraged throughout their life to do a monthly testicular self-examination. I think as long as we've educated them about the issues that we've been discussing, the risks of testicular self-examination are pretty darn low. I ask men to do it once a month for multiple reasons. Number one is relatively easy to remember. You set some sort of reminder, you know, when you have to pay the bill for, for something or your mortgage or whatever. Monthly is relatively easy to remember more frequently will actually cause some of those benign issues that we talked about if men are mashing on their testicles more often than they should they'll they'll set themselves up for discomfort and some of that sterile inflammation but also if you're examining yourself more frequently and something is changing relatively slowly it's much harder to notice than if you're doing it more sporadically so i like men to do monthly uh, self exams and then remind them that the vast majority of the time if you find something it's not going to be a big deal. It's going to be something benign, but please come on in and let us take a look at it. Maybe get an ultrasound and we'll sort it out for you. And then also remind them that in the very unusual circumstance that you are one of those very few people per year where we do find a testicular cancer, the expectation is that we are going to cure you. And the expectation is you're going to have a normal quality of life. And the earlier you come in, the easier it is for us to assure that we're successful with those things. So I think those are the, the single most important takeaways from my perspective and how we talk to men about this.
0: Well, we've been discussing scrotal masses and testicular cancer with Dr. Brad Leibovich, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Brad, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This was, uh, this was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.